This is Anthony and Areno, and you're listening to In the Arena. When I wrote The Only Sales Guide You'll Ever Need, my first book, I didn't know James Muir. At the end of each chapter in that book, I give readers a list of recommended readings. So if you want to go deeper on something like self-discipline or caring or optimism or resourcefulness, you can find other books to help develop in that particular area. But when I got to the skill of closing, I didn't have an opening quote for that chapter because there wasn't any content that I believed would be right for readers today. And there was no recommended list because I hadn't yet read The Perfect Close by James Muir, which is very much in line with what I believe about closing today and very much in line with The Lost Art of Closing. I invited James Muir here to talk about his book, The Perfect Close, to talk about closing more generally, and to talk about how things have changed in sales and how we need to behave differently. This is my friend James Muir in the arena. James, how are you? Super good, Anthony. How are you doing? It's always weird to say that because you and I have been chatting for like 10 minutes and (laughs) both of us are happy that everything we said wasn't being recorded at that time. (laughs) (laughs) that's a fact (laughs) although people would have liked to listen to the workflow conversation and how to be productive and the challenges of doing lots of different things at different times and running around speaking and consulting and all that stuff i think they would actually i mean i I, i'm not sure everybody is aware that you and i are both have other jobs in addition to you know being published authors, right? So it's like a challenge to balance all that. So I was just going to school on how are you pulling it off because you're you're prolific. Yeah, the writing thing is just it became a habit for me when I decided to write every day. And now it's very, very easy. I'll tell you in two thousand nine and ten, it would take me an hour to write a post. And because I've written you know, somewhere close to two and a half million words now over that period of time, it's more like 12 minutes and it's like a muscle. You just keep exercising it and it gets stronger and stronger over time. So I'm faster now and uh, it's taking less time than it did at the beginning for sure. Well, there's hope for the rest of us then. We'll just keep chugging at it. (laughs) Just type, just keep typing. (laughs) I want to talk about an idea because when I wrote the first book, The Only Sales Guide, I didn't put any quote at the top of that chapter, and I ended up putting one of my own so we would have symmetry because that's what the publisher wanted, because there really wasn't any content available for salespeople that I thought I could add to a reading list because all of it was so self-oriented and so tactical and so much focused on tie-downs and coercion in some ways. And I just didn't feel that that served salespeople. And that book was finished being printed when your book came out, The Perfect Close. Or I would have added your book. Your book would have been the standalone book on the reading list had the timing been different. What was it that came to your attention that caused you to say, wait a second, things have changed dramatically and what people are doing no longer serves them? 
oh, just managing my own teams and managing my own teams. You know, I work with both you know, direct sales people, but also people that are indirect sales. They're subject matter experts or some kind of domain expert of some kind that we would take out. And, you know, people that are often thrust into sales situations, but that's not what they do. And they would confess to me that, that they hated that part the most and they didn't know what to do at the end. And so I'd see it in my own teams, right? What, what's happening is if they don't know what to do, then they do nothing is what the net effect is. I've sat there in a you know, ride along and like, this is the moment we need to advance the sell here somehow. And, and, they're, and nothing, right? So I'm like, I got to give them a way. I got to give them a way that makes it easy for them to do the right thing. And so that's, that was essentially the impetus behind the book. I mean, I had my own experience with it. Um, I'm one of those people that thought that sales closed themselves, Right. So I would just keep overselling essentially. How long did you suffer with that belief? <laughs> I don't know, maybe two or three years right after yep. you know, I was sitting here like, I'm just going to keep talking. I, I'll just tell you an uh, embarrassing story. I'm working with this group in Las Vegas and I, I am so anal uh, because I came from the operations side of the business. I had created this little flow sheet that showed a diagram of what here's what the customer does and here's what I do. And I would actually give that to the customer. Right. And so here I am giving this presentation and it's already an hour. So we've used it for a whole hour and then we're into the second hour and everything was going great. I could tell this was going to happen. Right. And, but instead of asking you know, to move forward, I just kept on talking. And this guy, really nice guy, he interrupted me mid sentence says, James. And he turns around this flow sheet that I have created and he goes, I'm right here. And it was right where it was <laughs> review contracts, right? Right where we we're going to review the agreement. And I'm totally embarrassed. And later he told me, he goes, not everybody would have done that for you. Yes. He goes, but I could tell you were never going to ask. You were never going to ask. And you were never going to stop talking either. (laughs) That's right. That's right. So he stopped me. So I I reflected on that quite a bit after that meeting, thinking, why was it that I, here I was in the meeting, I knew everything was in the right place, and yet I still didn't do it. Why why did I do that? And, And at that time for me, I just didn't really have a natural way to do it. I, I had never really practiced what's the right thing to say. And I'll be re- straight up. I had read plenty of books at that point that, that sure. have ways of asking, but most of them suck. They feel very manipulative when you try to use those approaches. And so instead of doing something, I do nothing, which is what I see out there in the space. Yeah, it's interesting. And I, I, this is my follow-on question to that. My opinion on this, and I'll let you riff on this for a minute, I think if you aren't comfortable with the language and you don't feel good about yourself when you're you're saying it, then you're not going to say it. And so a lot of the things that would be in the old school closing books, they were effective in their time, but that was a different time. It was the, the 60s and 70s and things were very, very different, some into the 80s. But now if you were to say anything that came out of a closing book, it just makes people feel bad about themselves. Truly, truly. In fact, I think the number one reason is that if reps don't really understand how their product helps a customer, right, that selling is serving, then asking for a commitment actually seems selfish and self-serving. So I think that's kind of sort of the first barrier is that if they're not really understanding that they're helping by selling, then it, it, it keeps them from asking anything. And then on the other hand, when, they're, when they truly comprehend that what they're doing is actually helping the customer achieve a goal, well, then they become better, right? Helping the customer right. become better than what they are. Then they start seeing selling more as coaching or facilitation, right? It looks a lot more like helping. And so that's, I think, the first barrier. And then I think the second one is that 
you know, I think they fear closing because 99% of those techniques out there that they've heard when they realize they have a problem, like I did, and I read one, I'm like, I could never use that. That's a dud. I'm not going to say that. So if they feel manipulative, if they, and I might add that most of them are counterproductive, they'd backfire on you today versus helping you. People don't want to feel like manipulators, right? They don't want to be seen as pushy or self-serving. And so I, I can tell you what the result is, is I, I, I like, it's like 50 to 90% of sales encounters end without any kind of commitment being asked for. Right. And it's interesting to me, I'm going to go back to something else you said, but I'll, I'll just make one th- comment there. And I've done a couple YouTube videos about this. It's interesting to me what salespeople perceive as a uh, commitment and they'll take something like, we'll get back to you in a couple of weeks. And they believe that the client actually made a commitment there and the client really didn't. They were just talking and there's nothing on a calendar and they're really not committed to doing that. It's really just them saying something like, you know what, we're not where we are or where you think we are and they're being kind about it. Or they'll make a commitment themselves and say, you know, James, I'll send you that white paper when I get back to my office. And they think in their mind that the client agreed to read the white paper or do something about it and still no commitment has been made. And they'll come back to an office and say, oh, I had a great meeting with so-and-so. They're super interested in this idea and I'm sending them a white paper. All right, well, what commitment was made? I'm going to send them the white paper. No, what commitment did they make? You know, and they didn't really make any commitment and it's because we didn't tell them what comes next or ask them to do anything. That's a critical misunderstanding too. I've managed reps where they're putting out tons of, I mean, by anybody's standard, these guys are ultra productive, right? And yet their pipelines are all stalled with the, these opportunities. And so when we get into looking at, you know, okay, well, what's going on? What, did, what happened on this? And what happened on this visit and that visit? What I could see was happening with, with, with this one person I'm thinking of in particular is he was doing everything and the customer was doing nothing. Right. And so I liken it to throwing them a ball, right? If I throw the customer the ball, then they need to throw the ball back to me. And if they do, I know they want to play ball. If they don't throw the ball back to me, right, then that tells me this is really not a very good use of my time. And that's all we have as salespeople is time, right? How we invest it really basically just determines whether we're successful or not successful. And so, you know, this guy was doing the equivalent of throwing them the ball, and then going and grabbing another ball and throwing in the ball, right? <laughs> going and grabbing another ball. I mean, he was never, the customer was never throwing it back. And so, you know, you'd ask him, well, what did they do? Well, you know, we showed him another demo or I took him to lunch or whatever. And I would just argue that these are not commitments. That's right. It requires some action on the customer's behalf and some energy. And the, the more, the bigger the commitment and the bigger the energy expenditure the better indicator that we have that this customer is really engaged and it's a good use of our time. And if they're not, then it's tough medicine, but you just have to put that guy on the back burner and go find somebody who is because you don't have an infinite number of hours to, to work. I want to come back and talk about the commitment to change and whether a client's really made that. But before I want to go back to something you said, because I don't want people to miss this. And I found this to be a terrific strategy in helping clients make decisions and move forward. You built a flow chart to say, this is normally the way these things go. And I've had tremendous success showing a client the same thing. This is normally how this works. We're going to meet. We're going to need to sit down and spend time exploring You know what this is going to look like. We're going to need to spend time collaborating. We're going to need your team to come in and, and understand what we're doing and make sure we mitigate any problems that they might have because of what we're doing and get their support. And you start showing them these things and you look like a professional. You look like you've done this before. You look like you know how things can go, even if at 
at some point in a younger age, you were oblivious to where the client was while you were going through that process and had to have them go back to your flowchart to teach you where you were. You benefit them by telling them this is how this typically works best. And if you're going to make change inside your company, this is typically the path it takes. And I think we underestimate the power of actually showing the client how this works, not our sales process, but what commitments do they have to make and what do we have to bring to bear as resources to help them through that? So I actually think that's a terrific idea. I've done it myself. I like showing people how you get there because once they see it, they buy in. It's easier. I've seen one client with probably 24 boxes because they have a very complicated sales process and it requires all kinds of engineering. And when they show it to the client, the client is the first thing they do is ask for a copy of it because they're Mm going to go through the change process internally. Yeah. So I've had good luck with it too. And even in where I go into a really big organization where maybe they have their own internal process that's slightly different than what a typical client would do, you can still use the, the diagram as a way to say, okay, and they would say, well, we would do this here or we, and they'll just tweak it 10%. But now what we have is we've got this roadmap where we can just keep walking from top to bottom and, and helping them through each of the steps, even though some of them are all internal on their side, right? It's not from our side. Like I, very common mistake I see is that salespeople only think about the sale from their side, right? So I'm going to demo and then I'm going to do a proposal and then the next step is close. And I had one guy manage his forecasting was just horrid because to him, the last thing after he did a proposal was that, that it would close. And so he would just forecast it. The minute after he did a proposal, he'd forecast the next step to be a close. But there's a whole lot of things that go on the customer side internally before it gets to the close. So that's not really a good, you know, just because you gave him a proposal does not mean it's going to close. There's other things that the customer has to go through. And I think that one of the challenges that salespeople struggle with and, and the clients struggle with it too, is that even if we look at the sales process or we look at a buyer's journey, When we put it down on paper or in slide decks, it appears to be linear and it's a non-linear process. And as soon as you start adding additional human beings to what's already a non-linear process, then you go seriously non-linear. And I think that for years, we've perceived the sales process as starting at A and ending at Z and we just go through this, but it really goes A, B, C, B, B. D. I mean, you, you, you go through all these things because somebody enters in with a question or a concern or a new stakeholder comes in and you mm-hmm. have to start discovery over with a different group of people or a different department inside the company. But there's all these things. But when we perceive it as linear, it's easy to think, well, I'm looking, James, I'm looking right here at the sales process you gave me. And it says, after I present my solution and pricing, I'm supposed to close them. You gave me this. And now you're telling me that's not the right step. And you go, yeah, I did give you that. And that is what we did. We showed you a linear process. And of course you think it's linear. I do this and then I do that. And that's what it looks like. But in reality, you have a bunch of human beings who say, I'm not there yet. I still have concerns or I'm not there yet. This group's been left out. Now they found out and they don't want to come along with us. What do we do? And you have to be much more thoughtful in understanding the process of change and what it takes client by client to be able to do that, I think, effectively. 
not just client by client, but individual by individual within the same client. Sure. You got that, right? Because not everybody's on board with the same idea. There might be 10 stakeholders and five of them think this is a great thing to move forward. And the other five are like threatened by the whole project. So how do we, how do we make a win out of all of that? I think that's essentially what makes a complex sale complex yes. is that you've got all those people with their own agendas and needs and desires. And we got to create wins for all those people to the degree that we can. So I, I want to go back to pipelines for just a minute and and talk about how you know whether something is really an opportunity. And for me, it's the commitment to change. And if people are afraid of asking, this is the one question that horrifies salespeople in my experience is just to say, James, based on the work that we've been doing here together, the next step is for us to determine whether or not this is the right project and the right initiative for you to undertake and whether or not your organization right now has the capacity to make this kind of change. Is this the right thing for us to be working on? And if we find the right solution, does it make sense for you to go through this change? And they're horrified because what if they say no? Well, if they say no, well, then now you have to figure out what is the right thing for you to work on or when is the right time to work on that with that particular client? Or is it even an opportunity at all? But I see so many where the client is having nice conversations and they have some interest, but they're not committed to change. And so when you throw the ball at them, the ball just bounces off of them. They're not picking the ball up because they haven't yet committed that they're going to, right? Yeah, exactly. In fact, I say it almost exactly the way that you just said it, right? Which is, hey, we look at all this. Does it make sense to you to change, right? Does it make sense for us to move forward with something like this or is there something else, right? And then that gives us a chance to still have some dialogue, but we're really asking them, are you guys willing, is this something that you want to do? Yeah. Right. And I'll actually say it just like that. Is this something you want to do? And then sometimes you, just, you can see the wheels turning in their head right there on the spot. They didn't know that they were going to be thinking through this right now. And so they have to decide that. But I, I agree hundred percent. It's the only thing we have is our time. So we need a question like that. And the earlier we know it's not going to work, the better for us. Right. I love your tricky manipulative language. Is this something you want to do? <laughs> They're like, yes. Okay, good. Then, you know, it's just a straight question. And I think that what I like about your book, and I've felt the same way, it's interesting because two people, you know, both having the same experience, write books about that experience. You just ask in natural language. You just ask them, does it make sense to make this change now? Does it make sense to devote the time and the energy and the resources to doing something like this? You know, and if it's a complex sale, you might have to say, is the rest of the organization ready to come with us and start introducing the fact that we're going to need IT and we're going to need marketing and we're going to need other people in the room? Yeah, I 100% agree, right? And then that also, if they hesitate to that question, does it make sense? Then we can also say, oh, well, help me understand, right? And then they're going to tell you the lay of the land and we maybe we missed something when we decided to ask them that question and there's some dynamic we need to be aware of. And that might make our ask a little different. We might have to go back to step B because there's a dynamic we didn't think about, right? Right. Now we're just facilitating conversation, right? Instead of you know trying to railroad them into an answer. It's conversations and commitments. That's what the process really is. It's conversations and it's commitment gaining. And when we leave out the commitment gaining, we're just having nice, nice conversations and nice visits with people. Agreed. So I have a question for you. It's a little self-serving here, but I was so impressed with the lost art because you, you managed to define these 10 commitments that you can apply to every kind of sale. Right. And I was like, wow, this is, it's like taking Neil Rackham's just idea of moving the sale forward in a little way. 
but sequencing it and sequencing it in a way that works for all kinds of sales. I really marveled at that. I think that's a major achievement and I hope people appreciate that in your book. But I was going to ask you, was that an effort to sequence those or you know, did that come as an epiphany or how did you come up with that? I take a lot of notes. I write a lot of things down, as you might have noticed from the blog, right? I write a lot of things down. And I had been thinking over my experience selling, leading salespeople and doing the work that I do. When I read Rackham's book, Spin Selling, I only got two things out of it. I got the the three pages before he starts into the spin model, I think starting on 67, where he talked about the difference between an advance and a continuation and implication questions. And I just grabbed those two things and I started hammering clients with implication questions. I mean, always like, what happens if you don't change? As direct as that, I just asked it directly and people would start to say, well, if we don't change, then I think what I'm afraid of is that this is going to happen. And just asking the question started to produce better results for me because I was having a conversation about why change and it wouldn't have been called that. That's the popular you know, vernacular to talk about why change, why now, why us. But there wasn't that language choice then. So it was just implication questions and I started using them wildly. But what I decided to do was to never leave a meeting without another meeting. And whatever that next meeting had to be, I was going to ask for it. And I always had, at this time, a Franklin Covey binder. Yeah. And when I sat down with a client, I would open up the binder with a calendar in front of me on a notepad. And at the end, I would say, I think the next thing for us to do together would be for me to meet with your team so I can understand their needs. What's the best day for me to come back and do that? Can you open your calendar and can we put something on the calendar now? And people would say yes, and they would open their calendar and they would do it. And it would be lots of different things. Sometimes it would be, I don't think we have the right solution. So we need to talk about that and see how would it work in their company? Because what we've done other places isn't going to work here. And I would know that. So I would ask for a meeting to say, can we share some ideas or spitball ideas and see what works? Sometimes it would be, if I don't get the rest of their team in this room, when we start to execute this, they already have people that they like. They're going to hate us. They're never going to go along. So I have to try to get them on the team and win them over. So I made a list of those and it's not linear. It looks linear in a book because you have to put chapters in order. But I, I started to notice that there were certain things that had to be done. And I've always sold that way. And I've always taught people to sell that way, figure out what still has to be done. And it ends up that there's about 10, even though there's more. And when you read the book, you'll say, where's the commitment to negotiate? And where's the commitment to exchange legal documents, which I put all under the commitment to decide. So there's a lot of other little tiny commitments. And a lot of people saw the book and said, you've captured all the micro commitments. And I say, no, these are the macro commitments. The micro ones are things like getting your legal team on the phone to have a conversation and go through red lines. But I intuited this over time and I'd written it down and I'd shared it with my teams, but I hadn't shared it outside. And it ended up in the the first book. And I knew when I wrote the first book, when I actually pitched the publisher, I pitched them the second book at the same time, because I knew this was, this was sort of a missing piece for people to say, what commitment do you need to get on this meeting? And to our earlier conversation, I think a lot of reasons salespeople don't ask for the commitment that they need is because they're not sure what it is. And I wanted to give people a book that they could look at and say, okay, now I know what commitment comes next. And I know where I am in this process. And I can also look and say, did I skip over things like collaborating or building consensus or reviewing or talking about the investment early enough? All those things are why deals are stalled. 
and we can get them unstuck if we know what we need to do next. And if the client really is engaged and has made that commitment to change. Yeah, I think it's just a huge contribution. I mean, there was total missing space right there in the sales world and in this, you know, the literature that's out there. So it's, it's really unique in that regard. And so I think it's a phenomenal achievement to be candid and, and a good recipe for before you go into a meeting. All right, well, where am I? And then maybe just a little bit of planning. Well, what do I want to happen? What are the possibilities that could happen in this meeting? And then that gives us a sense of what kind of commitments or micro commitments we might get out of the meeting. So going back to what your earlier comment was, do you think that commitment to change is the big one? Is that the big hang up when you see where people, when they're trying to apply this, is that where they tend to miss the mark the most? That's where they start to miss the mark. That's where the client hasn't committed to change. And then we're down doing a presentation And then at the end of that presentation, we expect to be able to close them, but they're not yet committed. And why aren't they committed? Well, there's probably some of the things that came before that that we didn't do. We didn't really collaborate with them to design the right solution. So they're looking at it going, hey, it's not quite right. Or they didn't have the consensus meetings. They're looking at it going, yeah, I don't know if I can sell this to the rest of my team, which of course wasn't even involved or the investment isn't right and they're surprised that it doesn't match up with what they thought it was going to be. So there's all these things that we have to do and maybe not in in a sequential order in a linear fashion, one, two, three, four, five, but all of them have to get checked off at some point in most sales. But that's the big one. The second one tends to be consensus where we think I've got the power sponsor or I've got the champion or I've got executive support on this. And then you find out the executive support just withers away to nothing when the team says, we don't really think this is the right answer. And then you're done. And the investment tends to be a big one. People don't want to talk about the money. They're afraid of their own pricing, especially if they have a higher price than their competitors, which is actually a shortcut for having higher value creation. But they think of it as a detriment. And I think of it as an advantage. And when they start thinking of it as an advantage, they do better. And then the one that probably changes people's results most often is when they just learn that you have to say, James, I think this is the right solution. And I know you're going to spend time talking to your team, but I want to spend another hour with you and your team making sure that we've resolved all your concerns about a deal this big and this important for you just to make sure we're both 100% confident in moving forward. And they don't want to ask for that commitment because the client said, I'd like to talk to my team about this and we'll get back to you. Well, the team's sitting there with all these concerns, talking to each other without having the one person who should be in the room there to help them. And it's easy for them to kick it down the road because they're, well, these concerns, I'm not sure. Maybe we'll just punt it down the road and maybe we'll look at it again later. But if you don't know that that's what's going on and you don't have some way, some framework for looking at it, it's difficult. But I think if you have the framework, once you get the commitment to change, all these other things are going to happen. And they're much easier commitments to gain, in my opinion, once you've had that conversation. So is there a key to, now we're kind of deviating from commitments here to messaging, but is there a key to setting up that that question of uh, change? I mean, is there some components that need to be in that, in the message that happens prior to the commitment to change question? That Because I don't want to seed your thinking. I want, what's your take on that? I think if you get the commitment for time and you get the chance to explore If you can get implications, if you can figure out what's the compelling reason why this person should change and you can start to give them a vision, then that commitment's pretty easy to gain. And I think if you don't do that work, then that can be a tougher commitment because you haven't really built that case. And this is why 
the level four value creation structure that I use to teach this is you come in from strategic, which is why change and what you get for that instead of coming in with product. Because if you come in and you say, I have a better product and I work for a better company and we have more offices than our competitor and we have these great logos and I think you should change. There wasn't anything behind that that they go, you know what, your product's probably great, but what I'm using is working and I don't have any reason to change right now, or I don't believe I have a reason to change right now. So I do think that it matters what you do before you get to that point. Yeah, absolutely. And it's a mistake that I see a lot, actually. Like when I'm working with another company, I don't know, it's probably 80% of the time, they just haven't quite articulated that why change message. Why should I even deviate from what I'm doing now? I already have something that's solving it. Why should I do anything different? And when that's not baked, you can never get to the point where you say, well, is this something you want to do? Because they're like, well, I'm already doing it. Yeah, or I believe I am. (laughs) So forgive me for hijacking the questioning here, but you've got all of these really a stellar number of examples of commitment questions all the way throughout the entire book. So again, just a curiosity of mine is, do you find yourself using one of those more than another? Do you have like a favorite one that you use? I have a lot of them. And I, I think... I spend a lot of time thinking about the right language because what I'm trying to do when I'm actually selling is I'm trying to be super collaborative and I'm trying to eliminate any resistance. I'm trying to say these things in a way that's sharing the control of what we do next with the client so that I'm I'm consultative and I'm working, I'm sitting on the same side as the table as they are. And I don't want anybody to be put in a position where they have to be defensive about what comes next. And I want to give them a lot of cover for that. So I always try to use language that allows the person to feel like they have a say in what we're doing because they do. And if you treat them like they don't really have a say, then you're back to being manipulative and coercive. And even if somebody says yes, they're going to find a way to get out of keeping that commitment and get away from you as fast as they can because you feel like you're self-oriented and pushy and smarmy and things that we don't want to be. So I tend to like to use questions that return power to the individual I'm working with. So I'll say something like, James, in my view of where we are right now, I think that the right next step is to start bringing in some other stakeholders from your organization so we can start to get consensus around this being the right answer. Does that make sense to you? Or do you think there's something else that we still need to do? And I'm making sure that if they go, you know what, actually, I still think we need to get somebody on the executive team to support this, because when we start bringing them in, I'm going to have two people who are going to resist this. Okay, then maybe we do that next. You know, I'm trying to make this a collaborative process as much as I can and and allow them to participate rather than trying to just jam them down these commitments like I would jam them down a linear process. Yeah. And just think of the difference that, that just in the question that you asked, the feeling that's there. When you ask it that way versus using just any of these other methods where you're like, you know, do you want Tuesday or Thursday, right? When we do some kind of alternate choice or whatever, where they can tell they're getting railroaded. Here, you're just saying, well, does it make sense of this or is there something else we should be thinking about? That's a wide open field for them to explain what the dynamic is that's going on. and, And it's a sharing environment, right? And for us to try to close a sale in absence of the knowledge of what's going on inside the organization is uh, folly. The world's changed so dramatically. I mean, I, I think that you, if you people say this, I want to. I don't want to be salesy. I want to be consultative. I want to be a trusted advisor. You have to have really good language and really good strategies for making it a collaborative process because that's what consultative is. Consultative means I have insight. I have ideas. I can advise you. I can give you great counsel. 
And I also can help you make this change inside your company. And if they're not a participant, if they're not an active participant, and this is something you're doing to them and not with them, then it's not consultative. Then you're going back to tactical approaches from 30 years ago or 40 years ago that just don't serve you in today's day and age. Totally agree. Totally agree. So another question is, <laughs> I really like the audio version of the only sales guide. So are we going to get an audio version for Lost Art? I recorded the audio version and we've turned it into the publisher who bought the audio rights, but I have not yet been given a date. So we will absolutely have one because I went and spent days in a studio recording it. So I know we have it, <laughs> but I'm not sure when it's going to come out. I can't tell you how many people really prefer the audio. And I think it's because our audience, they're in the car. They're traveling between meetings and they like to have the audio. So that's, that's the time that they can do the, the work of listening to this and taking in the content, which will bring us to a good place for us to close because you have a link that we'll put in the show notes here where if someone buys my book and your book on Amazon, you're going to give them the audio version of your book. That's right. So it's just puremere.com forward slash the lost start of closing. And all they got to do is take their order number from your book, right? The Lost Art of Closing. And if they've already bought The Perfect Close, great. Take that one. Just put them in there and they'll instant download. They'll get the audio version of it. If you haven't bought Perfect Close, I'd recommend they just buy the Kindle. It's like three bucks, right? It's two ninety nine, And then, right, you'll have both the audio and the Kindle and to go with your Lost Art of Closing, which I think they're just the perfect pair. It's very, very complimentary. I mean, the material. Yeah. So it's interesting because two people are having the same set of experiences are writing something very, very similar about what we're really doing. Yeah, I was fascinated by how we came out of slightly different directions, but basically the same thing, very complimentary, but covering different things. I mean, you, yes. I think one thing that your book does is it, it takes the idea of the micro commitment and it does a better job of sequencing it. Yeah, you know, I'm not really addressing that in the perfect close. And then, of course, I'm covering some other things beyond that because I'm trying to, you know, what do you close on? And so I spent a pretty big amount of the book trying to help people get to the point where, all right, well, what am I going to ask them for? But you've kind of taken them a shortcut. You've given them a shortcut with the, with the 10 commitments that you've got in your books. I just think it's, I was so ecstatic when I read it. I'm like, this is great. We just moved the ball forward in a really big way here with these two books. I mean, I've got every book on closing you can imagine and this is just nothing like any of the 101 closes type books that I've got sitting around here. I think it's one of the challenges that I'll have helping people understand what's in the book because every closing book before yours and before mine, and mine is the second book. I think mine's the second book that's not a list of 101 closes. Yours is the first that treated this in a grown up B2B consultative way. And I think they work really, really well together. I wish I would have had your book before we finished the editing on my book, the first book, because I would have put that in as the recommended reading. And I still recommend it. That's the book that complements this book. And it's the other book that you should read right now. And I think we've just given people pretty much a masterclass in closing. <laughs> well, good. I, and for me, I was mostly just being selfish and getting, getting what I wanted out of the call, especially before we started. Well, we'll have to revisit that content some other time. Thanks so much for being here, James. Hey, thanks for having me on. It was a pleasure. 
You can find James Muir at puremuir.com. That's P-U-R-E-M-U-I-R.com. You'll find that in the show notes. I'm Anthony Anarino. You can find me at thesalesblog.com where I post daily. You can also find me at youtube.com forward slash Anarino. You can find both my books, The Only Sales Guide You'll Ever Need and The Lost Art of Closing, as well as James' book, The Perfect Close on amazon.com. Thanks so much for being here, and I look forward to seeing you next time in the arena. Audio editing and show notes by podcastfasttrack.com. Get 15% off your first month by mentioning this show.